This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The Cold War was fought in many ways. It was a traditional political and military confrontation, but it was also a cultural contest on a global scale, and one of the most important arenas in the cultural contest was sports. For that, we turn to Robert Edelman. He teaches Russian history at UC San Diego. His books include an award-winning history of spectator sports in the Soviet Union. And he assembled a winning team of more than a dozen historians to collaborate on research in the history of sport in the Cold War. The fruits of their work are now published in a book titled The Whole World Was Watching, Sport in the Cold War. Bob Edelman, welcome back. It's great to hear you. The U.S. and the USSR always competed in the Olympics starting in 1952, which was the first year the Soviets entered the Olympics. And whoever won the most medals gained immense prestige. Sports, unlike a lot of other East-West cultural competitions, music or film or literature, made it a lot easier to know who was ahead and who was behind. But you say... Different kinds of states produce different kinds of sporting systems. And indeed, the Americans always complained that the Soviet dictatorship had significant advantages in producing top athletes. Is that really true? It's true if you limit the practices of sport to the Olympic Games. In fact, the Olympics were a very distorting kind of uh, terrain or platform for measuring things. So I would argue that the Olympics uh, made the United States look weaker than it really was and the Soviet Union stronger than it really was, despite the preponderance of medal victories uh, in a variety or a number of different Olympic games. Well, American domination, you know, of everything in the world seemed to Americans to be natural and normal. How did they explain losses to the Soviets at the Olympics or defeats at the hands of the East Germans? Cheating. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was there, how much truth was there to the charge that the East Germans were doping their athletes and that the Soviets were cheating too? Lots of truth. The main complaint, the main issue before the uh, Soviets were allowed into the games was that it was well known, it was no secret that their athletes were being paid. Uh, and that the problem with the Olympics is that it's a sporting activity which was at that time restricted to amateurs. And that has roots in Victorian England and the emergence of modern sport, which came from elite public schools. They were called public schools, but they were really private schools. And those sports were things like rugby and cricket and then later soccer that uh, eventually attracted large working class audiences. And in order to limit the uh, rise of this uh, working class sport, the creator of the Olympics, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, created a competition which would only be open to those who could afford to train on their own and had the leisure. So when along come the Soviets, who are in fact supported by either jobs that they don't have to show up for, or their army officers, or sports instructors, or policemen, or students, then they seem to, of course, undermine this notion of the amateur code. So there's a great deal of uncertainty about bringing the Soviets into the Olympics at that particular time. They eventually do. The Olympics people hold their nose because the competition between the Soviet Union and the United States sold tickets and gained attention for their movement, which, of course, expanded enormously in its footprint once the Cold War in sport was joined. 
And to what extent was international sport during the Cold War a contest between the United States and the Soviet Union that left other countries out of the picture? I would argue that the Olympics are a bad arena for evaluating the sporting activities of any one of these countries. And that I also would also argue that the notion that the Olympics comprised all of Cold War sport is massively insufficient. Among other things, it reaffirms this idea that the Cold War was a bipolar struggle simply between two superpowers. And I am more attracted to the idea that uh, this was a multipolar competition between two globalization projects, capitalism and communism. And those groups, those organizations, those blocks were not entirely monolithic. But the other big problem, of course, is that if you limit the version of sport that you're looking at or the kinds of sports you're looking at to the Olympic competition, you're emphasizing the bipolar Cold War, which was, of course, between the United States and the Soviet Union, between the two superpowers, which was kept cold by nuclear standoff. Now, that, of course, meant that people justified the military confrontation by saying that the Cold War stayed cold because of nuclear war. But it ignores the fact that in the global south, there were literally tens of millions of people who died in proxy wars from Guatemala to Iran to uh, obviously Vietnam, Korea and other places. So to say that the Cold War was a peaceful time in human history is simply false. One more thing about the Olympics. Part of the politics of the Olympics was, of course, the boycotts. The first Olympics in the Soviet Union was Moscow 1980, and the Western countries boycotted those Olympics because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Four years later, the Soviets refused to come to Los Angeles. How important were the boycotts, and what were the Olympics like when one of the superpowers was missing? Did that create more room for the other countries to compete, or did that just make the whole thing less meaningful? Well, it was quite interesting. Obviously, the United States and many other NATO countries did not take part in Moscow in 1980, but Great Britain did. And they had numerous, uh, especially very big successes in track and field. But crazily enough, one of these British English people won the 100 meters, Alan Wells, at the Olympic Games in 1980. So it did create opportunities in 1980 for people who would normally not be on the medal podium. On the other hand, you had a situation in 1984 where Romania, a communist country, chose to participate and came in second in the medal cup, which, of course, you normally would not have expected outside of fields like gymnastics. So, yes, it gave opportunities for others who uh, had not been dominant to find a place. I think we, we have to talk about race, which, of course, is a huge issue in American sports. And, of course, the Cold War was a time not just of the civil rights movement in the United States, but also of decolonization, crumbling empires, wars for independence in what we call the third world. How is that process in international sports during the Cold War? Well, the one thing it was not was the idea that you had this, again, bipolar competition with the third world sitting in a sort of imaginary South stand deciding who won the pole vault in 1976. Had this fantasy where the prime minister of Ghana calls in the minister of agriculture and says, well, what should we do? Should we privatize agriculture or should we collectivize? And the minister of sports says, well, have you checked the sports pages yet? You know? <laughs> Somehow I don't think this happened. But this general notion was that the belief would be that 
if you had such athletes that seemed so admirable and so uh, attractive that this would then attract the loyalty and support of the world's citizens and their sympathies, the famous notion of hearts and minds. I don't really feel it worked that way and to see it that way eliminates the agency of the people in, again, the third world, who, again, as you've said, were people of color. And so the fact that this decolonization project is very much part of what goes on during the Cold War, it's not identical by any means, but it informs and expands the territory of the Cold War enormously. And there, the United States was fighting with two hands behind its back because of its racial issues in the United States, which the Third World was very sensitive to, and which the Soviet bloc constantly reminded the Third World about. This takes us to baseball, and now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. We're recording this interview as pitchers and catchers report for spring training your book has a section on Cold War baseball in the Caribbean. I learned there that Fidel Castro threw out the first pitch in Game 7 of the Little World Series in 1959. The Little World Series is where the winners of the top minor league teams played. In 1959, it was the Havana Sugar Kings of the International League against the champions of the American Association the Minneapolis Millers. Cuba was wild for baseball at that time. They produced championship teams. So let's talk about the role of players of color from the Caribbean in American baseball as a part of international Cold War sports. I agree completely. So the relationship of organized baseball, as it was called, or Major League Baseball, to the Caribbean was that of either colonialism or neocolonialism. And there were very strong leagues, especially in Cuba, which were interracial, but also uh, in uh, other parts, in Venezuela to Mexico and points in between, where people, among other things, from the Negro Leagues in the United States actually played during the winter. And so these leagues were a kind of in the late 40s to early 50s, around the time that Jackie Robinson is integrating baseball, are giving a sort of view of what the future would look like. And all the fans and uh, other sporting activists are looking at this thing, looking at this situation, and wondering when is the big leagues, when are they going to integrate? And of course, it happens with Jackie Robinson in 1947, allow me to say since you're invoking home teams with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, that was an important moment. And in particular, when the Dodgers continue to attract and recruit black players, and they finally defeat the New York Yankees in 1955, they were largely lily white, the Yankees, that this was a moment that was actually celebrated throughout the Caribbean and Central America. And of course, once Castro brought Cuba into an alliance with the Soviet Union, the pipeline between Cuban baseball and the American leagues uh, ended but the Caribbean remained and still remains a crucial source of uh, great players for American teams. Remind us about that history. Sure. I mean, one of the things I'm I was trying to do and imagine might be the case of a Dominican 
Republic-Cuban rivalry, with the Dominican Republic being the representatives of capitalism and the Cubans of socialism, uh, that kind of never really panned out. Cuba sort of stopped being a source of talent and the Dominican Republic basically replaced it over a period of 20 years. So uh, I wanted, as a scholar of the Cold War, to be able to extend that into my own work and into baseball itself. But baseball, again, was a very important part of American ideology. And it was something that, uh, through America's informal empire, was spread to the Caribbean and also to Asia as well, through America's informal empire, largely, among other things, through the YMCA and through various sporting goods uh, manufacturers. Let's talk about boxing in the popular mind Boxing determines who's the toughest man in the world. And boxing, of course, is an Olympic event. And in 1960, an American named Cassius Clay astounded the world with his boxing skills. And, of course, he ended up Muhammad Ali stripped of his title and banned from the sport for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Let's talk about the place of Muhammad Ali in world sports. Who had no quarrel with the Viet Cong. Yeah, But he was perceived as not being a Cold War figure until the time he refuses induction into the United States Army and then says this famous quote that I just mentioned. So then at that point, he becomes a Cold War figure. And then there's another moment when he's involved in the Cold War, which you mentioned the boycotts, where the Carter administration, so things have changed by this time, in inducts him or recruits him to travel through Africa to sell the boycott to uh, these newly independent or third world nations. And I think we also have to talk about the media, an indispensable part of Cold War sports. I think the media was in a symbiotic relationship in Cold War sports in that they simultaneously exacerbated the tensions and because that sold newspapers and obviously helped television ratings. So I think there was a tendency, especially early on, to uh, emphasize the ways in which these two systems were utterly different, uh, that the Soviet sport athletes were machines, that the Americans were just happy amateurs. Especially television later on uh, is essential to giving people stories that they can either take to themselves or accept as being uh, definitive or defining of what the Cold War was about in the largest sense. And there's one thing we have not yet talked about, gender. A great deal of attention was paid to female sports from the very uh, beginning of sporting activity in the Soviet Union as early as the 1920s. When they emerge in 1952, the women's part of their female part of their delegation is immensely successful. And of course, this is at a time when American women have been sort of forced out of the factories that they were in during the war, pigeonholed back into sort of suburban so-called traditional values. And so the gender roles that were evolving, if you can call it that, in the United States were challenged by these women Soviet athletes who were then perceived as Amazons, as being muscular, as being somehow lesbian-like, and maybe even as men dressed up as women. So the kind of famous sobriquet of this was that there were these two sisters, the Tamara and Irina Press. Tamara in particular was very large. She was a weight thrower. And they were referred to not as the Press sisters, but as the Press brothers. Mm. So uh, you can see the misogyny that was 
generated by the fact that the Soviet Union has built some of their sporting success, literally, dare I say, on the backs of female athletes. But in fact, it was a great contribution. And ironically, that the major challenge to the Soviet Olympic, especially in track and field, uh, success came from poor African-American women in the United States South, and specifically from Tennessee State University in Nashville. The book we've been talking about is The Whole World Was Watching, Sport in the Cold War. And we've been speaking with one of the two co-editors, Robert Edelman. Bob, thanks for talking with us today. Pleasure. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support, the new Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL.